Welcome back to the 160th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about the environmental movement and why it's overhyped in some regards and why it is 100% true in others. And then we have an interesting article talking about Google and their antitrust case, which has been taking the internet by storm. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, right to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. Why are people obsessed with personifying nature? You know, we've done this for thousands of years. We've had gods that represent nature. We've called her Mother Nature. We've had the Greek gods. We've had the Mesopotamian gods, so on and so forth. But we always want to personify nature. Is it just our our human nature that we want to personify everything, that we want to make things feel similar to us? Or is there an underlying beauty? Is there something more about nature that just attracts us to this idea that there is something human in it? Or do we just fit perfectly in that system? You know, throw your comments down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. So let's jump to our first article that comes from the American Institute of Economic Research, or AIER. And the headline reads, Warm mongers, not war mongers, warm mongers versus classical liberals. So by war mongers, what do they mean? They mean the environmentalist activists who are so so deeply concerned with the state of everything in our world nowadays, who constantly hold the threat of an environmental disaster over everybody's head. And I'm not saying that some environmentalists are not, you know, rational people who want to have conversations, but they're trying to really call out the people that are doomsdayers, that are constantly saying, oh, it's the end of days. Oh, it's all going to be over by 2025 or 2030. And I think it's important to make that distinction because I don't think AIER is necessarily calling out all environmentalists. They're calling out the ones who are trying to make it a real battle of fear in the public. So what is this, you know, the global warming crisis? Where did it begin? That's where the article wants to start. They want to give us a little bit of a background. Quote, the great climate alarm is in its 36th year, dating from a page one feature in New York Times in June 1988. Quote, global warming has begun, experts tell Senate. Given that climate change now defines environmental and energy policy and unceasing government intervention at home and abroad, this beginning and the classical liberal response are worth revisiting. The Times headline introduced a new piece where a limited set of facts flowed seamlessly into projected dangers and then into activist government policy. Fire, ready, aim. War is the health of the state, Randolph Bourne wrote during World War I. Robert Higgs' 1987 book, Crisis in Leviathan, generalizes the principle, crises are typically exploited by statist ideologues to justify Leviathan. So um, there's one last quote sentence, but I'm going to say Leviathan, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of Hobbes' description of an overreaching state that penetrates people's lives a little bit too much. Quote, that is the perspective from which classical liberals have viewed climate alarmism and forced energy transformation from the start. 
warmongering has joined warmongering, end quote. So what are they getting at here? There's a lot of information thrown at us. This started in 1988. Lots of people have pushed back since then. And there's this idea that in order to combat a crisis, in order to combat this existential threat that we face as not just a nation, but as humanity, we have to fully involve the government. We have to make sure the government is keeping track of carbon emissions. They are constantly proposing new regulations or providing subsidies for more green technology. So the article is coming at it from the point of view that, hey, yes, environmentalism environmentalism is a worthwhile movement to pursue. But when you start using the government as a mechanism of force, rather than allowing the private interests of the actors within that nation or within the world to take this head on, you're actually using that crisis mentality in order to seize more power than the government should have. And, you know, A-I-E-R, they are a more... I wouldn't say libertarian. They are a little bit more conservative. If you want to go to their basic economic principles, it is very liberal or in nowadays terms, libertarian or classical liberal with a limited influence from the government. So obviously they have a vested interest or at least this author has his opinions and is pointing this out from his side or at least how he sees it. But I do think that there is something here, which is if people really saw it as a existential crisis, they would change their behavior. And we have seen this. We've seen people buying more green products, transitioning to EVs. But when you have a overabundance, when you have more supply of these products because the government is actually subsidizing it, making it easier, encouraging businesses to create these, you don't necessarily have the demand which means the supply is outstripping the demand, there's too much going on, and people aren't actually making enough private changes to their consumption habits to justify the amount that the government is getting involved in these industries. You should leave it to the free market, because like I was trying to get at at the very beginning of this little rant, if people really do see it as an existential threat, and they see it as something that they can directly change or affect, they will change their habits in order to create that change. And when you bring the government into it, you skew the incentives and you end up spending money in the wrong places. What happens when the government is subsidizing or trying to force EV cars on manufacturers and consumers? Manufacturers right now, except for the ones that have been around for a while and have become really efficient at the process, are actually losing, I read the statistic today, 60 thousand dollars roughly sixty thousand dollars on each electric vehicle that ford is producing that is how much they are losing because they're not quite efficient enough yet but why are they selling it if they're losing sixty thousand dollars then why would they sell the car because the government is encouraging them to make the transition for the future so the demand is not there people are not willing to pay that extra sixty thousand over the price of a gas car or whatever the price the sticker price of the car is right now so in an ideal world, Ford wouldn't sell it, but the government's pushing it in a certain direction, so they're eating the losses now. They're actually eating to, into the profits, and maybe if they didn't eat into the profits so much, maybe they'd be able to pay the unions a little bit more money and wouldn't be so you know hard-strapped for cash going forward 
in these union debates going on. But that that's a different topic. And it of course, there are flaws in every single argument because some people will point out that, well, sometimes the private market can't fully equate for these sort of things. It can't necessarily take in and encompass all the different information that's out there. And also, sometimes the government actually needs to subsidize and force companies to go down a certain route in order to create innovation to make that product cheaper. And while that is a very interesting argument, that's exactly what the Biden administration is doing with the CHIPS Act. What happens when, even though they go through all this innovation, they do make it cheaper, what happens when they get to the end of the line and there's not as much of a need for those products anymore? Or maybe they're, the consumers just don't want them in the first place. If you spend 30 years subsidizing the chips industry and then 30 years down the road we've actually moved on to a new nanometer process that the old fabs that we were creating with these incentives don't actually need those fabs to be created, they could be 3D printed or something like that. Then we just wasted a whole bunch of economic capital, causing some inflation, reallocating jobs to the wrong place in the market. Therefore, when those jobs are no longer needed, those people are out of work and they've spent 30 years doing this one thing. They may not be able to transfer over to the other side. It's a waste of resources versus the capital markets. They'll say, okay, hey, yeah, we need these chip factories if there's actual demand for them. Then they need these certain jobs in order to create the chips that the industry itself will create that. And then as things start to transition, maybe they can actually change how the, the company can expand. It can utilize its capital properly rather than having to go down the incentive path that the government proposes. And they can actually get into that new 3D printing chip technology and find a way to integrate some of their workers. So I know, I know, that was a really long way of saying the government can't accurately predict the future. Nobody can. The most agile machine to actually keep up and constantly change is the free market versus the government that has to pass legislation, has to get everything approved through the bureaucracy. I mean, creating some of these rules and regulations alone with all the different approvals and rewrites they have to go through take, you know, six months sometimes, a year. So that can be a little bit too much, and sometimes the free market is the better solution there to be a little bit more agile. So this leads us back to the old liberal premise of the government getting out. And the article concludes with a very interesting statement saying, hey, do no harm, or as little harm as possible. Quote, classical liberalism can stand proud on the climate issue and offers the first best policy of do no harm. The charge of, quote, mother of all negative externalities against free market energy is, on close inspection, a problem of statism and climate policy activism. 35 years in, climate mitigation policies are a road to serfdom, roads to freedom to capitalize on the good and ameliorate the bad remain the best climate policy. Is a mid-course correction ahead, or will the climate industry complex numbly disregard the commoners in a futile quest for climate stability, end quote. And what they're speaking to here is a little bit different than the point I want to draw from it, but they're basically saying all these negative externalities that are created by the government getting involved, can they really be offset by the benefits? And we don't know that for sure. But the part where they're actually talking about the commoners here, the last line is very important because remember, who can actually afford a lot of these more expensive EV products that don't have a competitive market yet that are being subsidized by the government? It is the people that are a little bit more well-off. And the people that are not as well off are still going to be using a 
car or product that's a little bit cheaper, that the materials that go into it, the fixing process, you know, or maybe even, you know, types of energy, it's cheaper to burn gas at this point than it is to use wind or solar or to install any of those in your houses. So this is sort of a high-minded incentive structure that is coming down from the government saying, this is where we want to go, and we don't care how costly it is. We'll try to cheapen it as much as possible, and we'll provide economic incentives for the companies, but that doesn't mean that we can provide those incentives all the way downstream. I mean, lots of states have you know solar panel by kind of licenses or tax credits and things like that. Sure, but there is an extent to which they can actually affect the price at the end consumer or when the consumer or the customer is coming in and saying, hey, I want to buy this. There's only so much the government can do to actually affect that price. And if consumers can't get it at that low price that they need to, then they're going to resort to other things. So these right now are luxury products. The environmental idealism and the products that focus on that are luxury products. We'll see if it comes down to the masses, but right now the masses don't seem to want it or aren't thinking about it as much because otherwise their behavior would change. If the commoner, the common people, I hate saying commoners, it sounds so demeaning. If the common people were actually thinking about this and they were really, really passionate about it, companies would change their incentives so they could actually, or change their processes so that they could actually hire more people to build these products, therefore create a little bit of economics of scale, therefore make it cheaper and bring in a larger customer base. Whew, sorry, that was just a really long way of saying government get out of the business. And that's basically what the American Institute of Economic Research is saying here. So we also have another story highlighting why this is not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a disaster and how the Malthusian, and this is, let's be clear, they don't use the word here, but I've talked about this before, how the Malthusian idea that we will run out of resources has nagged us forever and we've always come up with new innovations and new products that, you know, are become substitutes to the previous ones and how we've transitioned from cobalt to lithium to a whole bunch of, we have a whole bunch of different processes, we're always innovating, consumption is not always the same. And this one comes from FEE, and the title is New Lithium Discovery Highlights Why We Will Never Run Out of Resources. While I think this is a very bold claim, we will never run out of resources, because from all we know, even though the universe is expanding, it is finite, so that means eventually we very well could run out of resources, but they're looking a little bit more short-term. They're not looking thousands upon thousands of years when we're a space civilization and we're out in different galaxies gathering resources. But the point still stands for the most part. And the reason I was going on that Malthusian trap kind of rant is because the Malthusian perspective is eventually we will run out of resources. There's a finite amount of land on this Earth. Well, the way you get around that is you go to other planets. You go to outer space. You build more locations where you can farm, which was the big Malthusian problem in outer space. But also, if you're talking about copper, you go and mine asteroids and things of this nature. So that's the really simplistic view of why we don't run out of resources. But FEE does a lot, you know, a little bit more brainy of an analysis that my small brain couldn't understand at first. But before we get into all that, let's jump to this first paragraph that describes what the trend is and gives a little bit of historical background, just like the first paragraph in the other article did. 
Quote, a new discovery of lithium this week led to a flurry of headlines touting the finding as one of the biggest lithium deposits in history. The discovery comes amid fears that a shift towards electric vehicles would exhaust too much of the world's supply of lithium, an important component in batteries. Fear about the availability of lithium is the only latest doom and gloom prediction about humanity's access to resources. Throughout the 20th century, experts predicted that we would run out of food, land, and oil, among other things. Consider, for example, the history of peak oil predictions in the U.S., and they provided a very nifty chart, and I won't read everything, but at first, in 1885, they said we would run out of oil, and then 1891, then 1914, then 1939, then 1951. Wait, oh, you thought it was over? Nope, because then it was 1972, and then it was 2007. And I'm sure there are other predictions that are out there right now saying we will hit peak oil. And there's kind of this idea, okay, yes, eventually we'll run out of resources. It keeps recurring and recurring and recurring. And yet it gets proven wrong over and over and over again. We've created new drilling techniques. We've found or done more prospecting and therefore found more oil. I wouldn't be surprised, just like we can you know, pressurize carbon and make diamonds nowadays, maybe there will be a way that we could actually pressurize some of the materials that would go into oil and organic material that goes into oil and create oil in the future. I, I'm not saying it's 100% possible. I'm not saying I know the science, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, if that demand for oil is still there and we haven't fully transitioned to a green economy. And I would do want to contrast from the last one where I, when I was saying, hey, no, 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 you know, the green economy, it's not actually what people want right now. That's why we're not seeing innovation. I do think we're headed for a green economy. I think it will happen sooner rather than later just because of the fact that the sun is unlimited. So if you're looking at it from a rational perspective, why would you want to risk using resources that come out of the ground versus using the sun when we could put a, you know, solar panels, you know, outside of Venus, outside of Mercury, and harness power that way. Or we could have a giant dome or circle around the sun that harnesses energy very efficiently. I'm not saying we aren't headed towards a green economy. I'm not saying it's irrational to think that we should run towards one. What I'm saying is right now the incentives aren't in place. Right now we are a society purely built, or at least mostly built on oil. A lot of the products we use are petroleum products. Almost all of the transportation methods that we use use some form of natural gas, diesel, you know, oil. So I don't think it's smart right now, and people haven't realized that there's a, a good reason to switch to these other products. It will happen eventually, but it should happen naturally rather than the government coming and getting involved. And the reason the government always comes and gets involved is because of studies like this. They look and they say, oh, well, we're going to run out of strategic oil reserves. We're going to run out of new drilling locations. We're going to run out of domestically produced oil and the rest of the world will too. And we don't want to be, you know, at the thumb, underneath the thumbs of other countries, which is a fair national security concern. But it all relies on this basis that we can actually predict when we'll run out of something. And this is one of the things that this article really talks about, which is the forecasting problem. Quote, technical forecasts of research availability rely on two factors, the quantity of a resource available and the rate of consumption. For example, if a community only has 100 gallons of gas and they use 10 gallons per day for their cars, they will only last 10 days. In the late Julian Simon's book, The Ultimate Resource 2, he highlights that this approach is fundamentally flawed. 
The problem is that experts don't have access to either the physical quantity of a research resource available or the future rate of consumption for resources. So it does go on to explain this a little bit more, but I do want to break it down. One, the great example is literally the new lithium deposit that we just found. We had no idea existed before. So all of the predictions that based off that were based off of the mines and depositories that we had found before or we knew existed, now all of those go out the window because we found it found a new deposit. So we can always not always find new deposits, but even if we don't find them here on Earth, we may find them on asteroids, so on and so forth. So it's hard to really say that we know exactly how much of a supply of lithium we'll have going forward. Also, we might, may start mining a little bit deeper and may find some more there. But I think the interesting one that people don't think about, because, you know, people are fully aware we find new things. I mean, the gold rush happened multiple times in this country, and we kept on finding gold in different places when they thought it was a little bit more scarce. Same thing's been happening in Africa. So people are at least aware that we do find new deposits. We have new technologies that allow us to do it. The consumption rate one is very, very interesting. This other side of the coin, in my opinion, because it's something that people don't necessarily think about. Because when you think of a lot of the precious metals, gold, gold has been something that we've cared about for a long time as human beings. Diamond, on the other hand, if you go back 500 years, diamond isn't as precious as it is today. If you go back even further, they're probably like, oh, clear rock, cool. Versus nowadays, there's an entire market around jewelry, around looking fancy. So that's actually an inverse case that I bring up. In the past, diamonds weren't as valuable. Now, they're even more valuable. There's a cottage industry around them. So you can't predict the future consumption of any sort of population. Now, what about an example going the other way? Well, think about it this way. Coal. Coal is still a very valuable valuable resource. It is something that we need to consume. But if you look solely at the United States, when was the most coal probably used? Uh, probably during the Industrial Revolution before we had oil, when we were powering a lot of our trains via coal. Now, coal, of course, is still how we generate a lot of electricity nowadays. So you may actually see a dip and then a return as we find more coal deposits. If you want a, another example of something that we used to really, really, really love, but we don't necessarily need anymore. Think about horses. We didn't necessarily, at the beginning of this country, we didn't just have horses to have horses. We had horses in order to pull carriages, in order to provide transport, in order to get people around. Now, horses are not needed, or at least the consumption patterns have changed, and it's no longer about having horses so that we can move around, but rather horses so that we can show them off. They can race. It's kind of a higher, upper-class kind of thing. It's not necessarily something that the most common people would have, and you know, it wasn't that case back in the day, but it's not like you see an abundance of horses pulling around carriages. No, their purpose has changed, so the consumption pattern of people in that industry that are looking for transportation. They don't look for horses anymore. They look for cars. Now people that are into racing, they've continued, and that consumption has continued for horses, but the supply has steadily gone down. That's why horses, you know, really valuable animals, especially if they're racing or they have good genetics, they are more expensive to buy. So all of these things, there are lots of other examples, and I'm sure you could pull better ones off the top of your head. I'm just doing this randomly, so those are the ones that came to mind. 
but there are probably lots of other resources that we have used over generations upon generations upon generations that used to be really, really valuable. And since there's no longer a need or a want for them, they have become a little bit more inexpensive. The consumption has changed. And one of the reasons that the consumption has changed, especially with technology, is think about it this way. We used to have a lot of chips made out of metal, and then we had a chip that is made out of silicon. So we're still making the chips, but we're using alternative materials. This is the substitute effect, and this is something else people can't account for. As we move forward, we're not just going to keep having lithium batteries in our EVs. Some people are talking about having a you know different metal that they could use. I believe there was like a cobalt version of the battery that Tesla was trying to create. So there will also be switches in the future. It won't solely be lithium that is needed for these giant EV projects. And as we go forward, it may not even be EV projects. We may switch completely to hydrogen cars. There are always new innovations which are spurred on by the market when people see that the, or a company sees that there's an opportunity here and people are willing to buy it. And they also see the value in it that with more technology, more innovation, the process changes. What is consumed to actually get that end product is also changed. So that's why these models never really work because we can't predict the future. We cannot be an organized, top-down society that says, oh, we know exactly what we're going to need in the future and we know exactly how we're going to have to get it, so we're going to need blah, 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 and blah. Because in doing that, you actually lock yourself into that future. You don't allow for innovation. If you say that we're going to have this by this date and we're going to do it by doing X, Y, and Z, well, in order to make sure your prediction is right, in order to actually achieve that end goal, you have to make sure you do X, Y, and Z. You don't allow for innovation. You don't allow for change. And therefore, you never know if you could come to a different outcome or if you could find a better way that doesn't require X, Y, and Z, but requires G, S, and T in order to reach that outcome. So you see how this top-down planning, this government interference, can actually straddle the free market and cause a lot more pain than it does good, even if the ends that the government is going for are noble. All right, so that was enough ranting about economics. I know, I know, I know, I sound probably like a (laughs) radical libertarian or an Austrian theorist, but also... There's one more article that has a little bit to do with economics, and there is an economic side to it, but it's also about big business. And it is the American prospect story about Google and their antitrust battle. So I only want to really read one quote from it, and then I want to describe the ongoing battle and how it's a a little bit tricky to actually define. Quote, for nearly two decades, Google has served as the on-ramp and gatekeeper of digital world through its dominance of search engine functions, which is the target of this case. The government has unveiled a separate case against Google for its roll-up of the digital advertising market. Though related, the case relies on distinct evidentiary claims, some of which will feature prominently in the current trial. To win a Sherman Act monopolization case, given the prevailing understanding of the law by most courts, the government not only has to prove that Google's market share qualifies as a monopoly, but also show that it's used this dominant position to harm competition. That's the task ahead for the DOJ Antitrust Division's team, led by attorney Kenneth Ditzer. 
who also served on the Microsoft case and the last, or sorry, the last major tech antitrust case from the 1990s. So why is defining the market share going to be so tricky? Because search is embedded into everything that we do nowadays. You may think, oh, no, 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 Google's a search and I can just search whatever I want. And all the products I want, if I'm trying to shop, can come up. Or if I'm trying to find videos, they'll come up there. But if you think about it that way, Rumble for the video infrastructure, Rumble, maybe Netflix could be considered. Uh, you could also talk about maybe Twitch or even though Twitch is a little bit different. But still, you could say the entertainment context sphere. And when it comes to that area of search, Google might not have a monopoly because you have other companies that are doing it. Or if you think about shopping, what about Shopify? What about Amazon? What about Etsy? What about all these online marketplaces, eBay? Well, Google may not have a monopoly in that shopping market share. And what about information? Well, maybe Wikipedia or um, Merriam-Webster or online almanacs, all these different things that provide information. There are a whole bunch of different markets that are segmented within search. So that's what Google is going to argue. Well, no, if you compare us to other companies, even Walmart, think about buying products on walmart.com. You can search within Walmart's features, and that is its own search engine to some degree in order to find products that Walmart has. So that's why it's going to be really hard to pin down what the market share is. And DOJ is going to take a really broad stroke. They're going to say, no, no, the searching of any type of information Google has a monopoly on. They actually bring all these other search engines. They create the central hub with all these little posts of all these other websites that are using their services or using the extension of search in order to be found by customers. And Google's going to argue, no, we actually compete directly with Amazon because people just go to the Amazon app and search things there. We compete with Walmart. We compete with eBay. We compete with YouTube, even though YouTube is technically one of their own companies. But my point still stands. They compete with Rumble. So they're going to try to make it as broad as possible. We saw this back in the day when uh, Dr. Pepper and Coke, try, or sorry, I believe it was Pepsi and Dr. Pepper tried to merge back in the day. I could be wrong. It may actually be Dr. Pepper and Coke. But when they tried to merge, they actually said, well, no, no, it's not just you know carbonated beverages that we're going against. We're also fighting against coffee and all these other beverages. And the DOJ was like, no, 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 no. While those are things that you may compete against, your main market is sodas. Other sodas are your competitors. And Google's going to say, no, all these other companies, they are our competitors. But then when you really funnel it down, DOJ is going to say, what, you got DuckDuckGo, you got Google, you got maybe Edge or Bing or maybe Brave. And even of all those different search engines, Google has like 90% of market share. So it's going to be a really tricky one. So we'll see how everything plays out. Just keep your ear to the ground. Keep listening. You know, we're at the very beginning of it. But it will be a monumental case if things don't go Google's way because they will have to be broken up. And honestly, I don't even know if they'll be able to because all of their services are so intertwined and all the data that they receive from all those services, they function, all of the services function off all the data from the other services. So we'll see if they could even survive with this breaking up going on. Or maybe they have to have data sharing agreements where they sell it to them for like one cent. Who knows? All right, let's jump to our daily delight. And this one is a very, very cute story. Quote, woman shows 
soul-stirring moment, shares soul-stirring moment with dog after being apart for months. And, you know, long time, long times that you spend away from people you care about can really feel even longer when you truly love someone. Now imagine the bond between this woman and her dog. Quote, after a month of longing and miles apart, Jenna King and her adorable doggo had a magical reunion, which is captured on this video. So after, it was about a a month of being apart, they're coming back together, and I really hope that everybody, or let's hope that everybody can really experience a love this deep, and they can have a moment like this where they get to embrace that person that they haven't seen for quite some time. Quote, the soul-stirring clip starts with Jenny returning at the arrivals area of the airport when her pup is patiently waiting for her. It takes him a bit to realize that the person approaching him is his adoring human. <laughs> but once he does, his outpour of affection for Jenny is unmatched. End quote. And if you want to see any of these cute videos or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.